I just struggle so much with worldly thinking and selfish thinking throughout the week that times when we can come together and assemble, you know, the songs we affirm to one another, being reminded of our mutual identity in Christ, you know, partaking of the Lord's Supper and just so intimately remembering together what, what God has done and, and, and just the, the spirit of why we are who we are is, is, is so encouraging. You know, and there, there's just so many encouraging things happening um, with different uh, saints who are here, and it just emboldens faith in such a needful way. Um, I'm just so thankful just for everybody who's here, everybody who's here. Um, so we're going to be uh, finishing the month with a sermon that I usually teach in the beginning of the month. And uh, we're looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha all year, uh, once a month. And I, I think it'd be good to review, because um, there's a lot of new people here um, who weren't here at the beginning of the year. One, one of my goals in this series of lessons, uh, we looked at Romans 12 last year, which was a very application-based chapter. And what I wanted to do is show how in the Old Testament you can find these applications in the Old Testament in ways that almost like give you a a more vivid, full picture of what this looks like in its application and also ways that these events in the Old Testament hit the heart to motivate, convict the heart to motivate action to apply those things that we studied last year. So we're going to see that in the lesson uh, this morning but also how to just get more out of reading the Old Testament. So sometimes the Old Testament can just kind of seem like a factual narrative of events, but um, just like we looked at last week, God is identifying himself throughout Scripture. Everything is tied into Jesus' identity. And not only that, but helping us to understand how do we identify with God. And so the goal is also just trying to search the Scriptures to get more out of what we're reading and see that there is more that we can gain from it. So we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, the title of the lesson is Restoring the Lost. I think that's a theme in this chapter. And, you know, you may have in your mind kind of an idea of what that might mean. But I think 2 Kings 6 is going to probably be different than what you have in mind. Um, but I, I want to also just review some of the history here. Because this, this actually makes it more real and more important, you know, as we go through these, these events We're at about 100 years since the time of Solomon now, so we're really beginning to get more distance. Ahab was about 60 years. I mean, so so time is really now just passing along. And Jehoram has been the the king reigning since 2 Kings chapter 2, Jehoram. Uh, Jehoram was the son of Ahab. And if you remember, Ahab was worse than Omri. Omri was worse than Zimri. Zimri was worse than Baasha. So there's just a series of plummeting kings just constantly coming one after another through the history of Israel. And and just the nation was was plummeting in in every aspect of what would have made it God's nation. Judah was going through this continuous renaissance uh, all the way through the reign of Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat named his son seemingly after the name of one of the sons of Ahab because Jehoshaphat allied himself with Ahab foolishly. And after Jehoshaphat, Judah starts to plummet as well. Jehoram was an evil king who walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And by the way, it's kind of confusing, two Jehorams reigning at the same time. If you're reading Second Kings or the Chronicles, you're like, okay, who, what's going on? Um, it's two kings who are both named the same thing, and the fault is Jehoshaphat giving us that confusion because he allied with uh, Ahab. So a lot of time is passing, and again, Jehoram has been around for the life of Elijah. He's been around for the life of Elisha. 
So when we're going to read uh, Jehoram interacting with Elisha, I think it's important keep keep those things in mind. That this isn't just some random spark of an event where Elisha's just showing up out of nowhere. This prophet has been long established with the king of Israel by this point. So 2 Kings chapter 6 starts with an extremely unusual account where you read it and you kind of think to yourself, why is this even in the Bible? What am I even reading? Um, So 2 Kings 6 verses 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and each of us take from there a beam, and let us make a place for ourselves where we may live. So he said, Go. Then one said, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. He said, Take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. Again, you read this and you think like, What's going on? Like, why, why is this even important enough to write in scripture? And we'll, we'll get more into that. But um, I just want to think for a minute, if you look on your outline, the first thing is what kind of people were the prophets? Uh, Interesting thing about Israel, they were experiencing a renaissance greater than maybe even what was going on in Jehoshaphat's time and the king before him because the prophets were a growing remnant. You remember Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he fled from Israel because he thought he was the last prophet standing and it seemed like literally everything that could possibly restore the nation was done and they were still advocating apostasy from God and even advocating the death of the prophet. So Elijah was thinking, I mean, there's nothing left to do. It's, it's hopeless. And God assures Elijah there are actually 7,000 people in Israel who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And from that point forward, literally from that chapter, we see prophet after prophet and then prophets living in Jericho, living in Bethel. And now in chapter 6, you've got prophets who are apparently outnumbering the place where they're living, and they've got to go to the Jordan to expand their place. And I think really the first thing about what kind of people the prophets were, they were living in incredibly harsh conditions. Israel was not an environment that made faith easy, right? I think sometimes we can get into the delusion, and, and I get into the delusion sometimes, and I've been in the delusion, that in order to succeed in faith, I've got to be in a place that caters as much as possible to my convictions, so, you know, if, like, if I'm living in a culture where its laws and its, its culture have a lot of immoral things going on, you know, it probably is not the best place for me to be. And, and that may be true, right? But I think what we find with Elijah and Elisha is people living with purpose and resolve in those kinds of places will flourish in their faith. So the hostility of their conditions made it so that their faith was not based in their environment and the ease that their environment provided for their faith, but rather their faith was explicitly placed in the character of God and in their trust that he would provide for them, right? So the hostility of the conditions made their need for God very clear. And a part of that too was we get the continuous implication the prophets were actually very poor people. So on the notes you notice in chapter 4, just in two chapters earlier, there was a wife of a prophet who feared God where her husband had died. And she was so deep in debt 
that a creditor was about to take her two children away as slaves to begin to even just attempt to salvage something from this immense debt. You remember Elijah really didn't have a house or a home. You know, he would just kind of live off the land. Uh, Elisha walks about more freely, but it just kind of seems like, again, he's just a nomad wandering about the nation. So the prophets were a people who were, they were poor people. And a greater implication of that is in verse 5. Did this axe even belong to the prophet who lost the head of the axe? So not only did he have to borrow an axe, it seems implied by his cry to Elisha, he didn't even have the means to purchase another axe or pay for whatever could replace it. Um, So harsh conditions and people who are experiencing that harshness. And I think that prepares the nation in a better way than Judah. Jehoram in the south was a king who was riding the wave of the good kings before him. And oftentimes in Judah, it seems like that the people served God so long as it was convenient for them. And then we can get kind of this delusion in reading it that Judah was actually faithful to God. And really, that is oftentimes just the way things appear, and it's not really substantial. And so faith flourishes in resistance, not always necessarily when things are convenient. Another thing, second thing about the prophets, notice in verse 1 and 2 especially, they wouldn't act without Elisha's approval. And I think implied from that is they took God's authority very seriously. There were a lot of, a lot of times we read where the kings got into an incredible amount of trouble because they would act in flow with a prophet's work without referencing the prophet again at the end of some events related to the thing that the prophet initiated. Um, so, for example, Second Kings 3, uh, Elisha told the kings who had gone against uh, Edom how to get victory, and they went way too far with what they were doing against Edom, and it ended up turning out terribly. And what they could have done is they could have asked Elijah what to do as the battle progressed, but instead uh, everything kind of self-destructed and backfired as things went on because of the foolishness of the fierceness that was involved in their passion, right? So they wouldn't act without Elisha's authority, but also in verse 3, they saw Elisha's presence as safety and security, right? So it's not just that they wouldn't act without his approval, they also wanted to make sure that he was with them because of just knowing that Elisha's presence would provide some sort of necessary security, which obviously is fulfilled when the axe head is lost. And thirdly, how tender-hearted this prophet was. You imagine how he could have lost the axe head and been like, oh well. And I mean, that was the attitude of the kings, right? You imagine Ahab in 1 Kings 20. He murdered a man to seize a plot of land and had no immediate sorrow from it. And the prophet had to confront him just to get him to be even just slightly sorry. But the prophets were a people who were very tender-hearted. Exodus chapter 22, verse 14 I don't know if the prophet would have been thinking about this passage or if it would have just been a natural, just a natural force of his heart being humbled by his knowledge of God and his work as a prophet. But Exodus 22.14 does establish the principle that borrowed things lawfully must be returned back to the owner. So lawfully, the prophet was obligated to make sure that if he borrowed an axe head or an axe, that it would actually go back to the owner. Um, so the, the prophet was lawfully tender-hearted. He was gravely concerned even about these seemingly little things 
that God had actually expressed concern over within the law. Um, so with the event itself, the prophet has a tender heart, asks Elisha to do something, is implied by his cry. And in verse 6 and 7, just thinking like, is there anything significant about this? Like, is there any point or principle that we can be getting out of this? And I think there is. Jesus would oftentimes do things, he would say things that don't really look like anything. Um, Oftentimes it wouldn't look like there was really any greater point to anything Jesus was doing But then he would oftentimes qualify what he had done to imply that there was actually something greater involved in his work or teaching. Matthew 13, if you'd turn there. And you don't don't have to turn there. I'll I'll read the verse if you don't know where that is in your Bible uh, quickly enough to get there. But in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching in parables. And the parables are very simple stories that were very confusing because of their simplicity. And what Jesus would reveal is is he was actually trying through the simplicity of these stories to bring something hidden up into view so that something can be taken from the story by the person, which would then lead them closer to God. So in verse 15, those who are not getting anything from his parables and their simplicity says, For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, note this, They would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, right? So I think with the stick being thrown in the water, it's like weird as that is, I'd like to suggest to you that God does nothing and God does not reveal anything without having something greater as a purpose to be brought into to be brought into view through even just the meagerness and littleness of the event. So obviously the power was not in the stick, right? Like if you lose something in the water, you grab a stick because of this story and you think, well I mean, Second King six, like a stick made an iron float, so surely this is gonna work. Nothing's gonna happen, right? Because clearly a stick does not have the power to do what happened here. But I think that's a part of the point. A parable itself really doesn't have power. The power is when the parable brings something into view, something that was lost, something hidden away, something that God wants us to see with our eyes and be convicted that we've lost that thing that God is trying to bring back into view so that we have enough care and a tender heart about it to want it back. And so in Matthew chapter 13, he mentions the parable is actually leading people to forgiveness, that it's actually making people see their need to be brought back into reconciliation with God. And Jesus was using a meager method that was easily a stumbling block, if that alone was the focus, where people would not get the point or get what Jesus was trying to say. John chapter 2 verse 11 is when Jesus turned the water to wine, another example. I mean... You could think that, okay, well, the point is just Jesus is trying to provide this tasty drink for everybody at the wedding. But then verse 11 says, by that sign, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there's something going on greater than just a tasty drink being freely given to the wedding party. There was some greater point about Jesus' identity and his power and how people are themselves transformed inwardly as they obey his word and, and listen to his words. So something hidden was being brought into view 
through a method that itself was not where the power or the purpose was, right? So real quick, um, time out. I'm going to turn my page and it's upside down. But if you just like go like this, it's upside up, even though it's upside down. So it, it's, it's nice, um, actually. So anyway, uh, one, one last thing that I think is very important about this. What is the cross, right? So like in the example with Elijah, clearly the power is not in the stick. It's just a piece of wood. But it's that, I mean, it's still that the stick was used to bring something into view that was lost that could be taken. I just want to think, what is the cross to us, right? Like, was the power in that wood, like, is the wood beams that Jesus was crucified on, were they some powerful force that itself has great strength to do anything? There's really nothing significant about the cross itself. And we sing a song, The Old Rugged Cross, and songs like it, where we're, we're talking about not the cross itself, but it's what the cross brings into view. This meager, pointless thing that of itself is this foolish thing that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And is that power in the wood alone? Or is it in what, what that wood was used for to bring into view? And through that wood being used, we see that we can take out our hand and see something that God is wanting us to obtain, something lost. Last point about all this. If God in the story now, back, back to like the account itself, if God was willing to do this with an axe head, how much more valuable are human souls and human lives, Right? And I think a part of the point of this, like much more simple than maybe those other New Testament points, something much more simple is if God was willing to do this for an axe head, how shameful then is it that people in Israel, his own people, were giving him no opportunity to redeem them? Not because God was not powerful enough, not because it was not important enough to God, and not because he was not fully willing it's that they were not giving him any opportunity. So, 8 through 17. We're going to move a little bit more quickly through these next ones. I just kind of wanted to settle on that one for a while because it looks so pointless on the surface. wanted to dig into that a little bit. But 8 through 17. Now, the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servant, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendants of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the, eyes, opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
So really quick, we have the Arameans here. Just a, a quick recap of the Arameans. They have been the most consistently oppressive enemy of, of Israel. And I'll just show you again why. So I've got the arrows on places that we're dealing with in our study. Um, the two middle arrows are Israel's territory. You've got the right arrow with the Jordan, the left arrow with Samaria, where Elisha's about to take the Arameans. But Aram was just northeast of the Israelite territory. So basically they were constantly fighting to get more land from Israel. Then when Israel would win back some land, the Arameans would then try to get it back. So they were just in, in constant conflict with one another. In 1 Kings 20, Ahab had the opportunity to end that conflict and defeat the Arameans, but he selfishly uh, spared the king of Aram, and now they're paying for it and will pay for it even more. In 1 Kings 22, the Arameans actually kill Ahab. And really he self-destructs in that because, again, he had the opportunity to end that conflict earlier. 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman. Do you guys remember where Naaman was from? He was a captain of the Aramean army, right? So there's a lot of history between Aram and Israel. Again, this isn't just some random flash of a thing where there's no history, there's no buildup or anything like that. Um, and God through Elisha, I think it's important to note in this, Elisha was initiating all of the events that we're about to read that continue through verse 23. That this wasn't the king of Israel initiating this. This wasn't even necessarily Aram initiating this. God was initiating certain events for a certain outcome here, right? So what happened? King of Aram is warring against Israel. And you imagine why this would be so frustrating. Every time you go to try to attack your enemy, they just somehow seem to have gotten word that you were going there and they're gone, right? Over and over again. And verse 10 says this happened in the New American Standard more than once or twice. It's kind of like the idea. This just kept happening over and over again for a while. And obviously it's Elisha who's giving the king of Israel word and not because the king of Israel is worth protecting. Uh, Jehoram is, an, is a terribly wicked person. And in the next events, the next time we do a study like this, uh, Jehoram is going to want to kill Elisha. So it's not like this man has earned anything because of his service or reverence, not at all. Um, just graciously, God is protecting him. And I think the point is to draw the Arameans to Elisha. And how that happens is very interesting. So the king of Aram obviously thinks somebody is like a spy, you know. But in verse 12, it's a servant again who saves the day. That's consistent in the lives of Elijah and Elisha's servants seem to always know about the prophets and always seem to believe that they're prophets. So he mentions that there's this prophet in Israel who has the ability to tell the king everything that the Arameans are planning. And in verse 13, he tells them to go find them and they go to Dothan. Now, just kind of think about this. Elisha has been reading the Arameans' plans so that Israel can escape. So do you see a problem with thinking that you can just go where Elisha is and somehow you'll find him, you would think you would assume that he's going to know you're coming, right? But in verse 15, Elisha's still there. Again, I think the point is actually that Elisha wanted to be found. The whole point was to bring them to Elisha so that these events could happen. Um, we'll talk more about that in, in just a minute. But I think, I think that helps to clarify too that God was not just looking for opportunities to punish the nation. Uh, God could have let the Arameans find Israel and hurt them, kill them. 
uh, but instead he's looking for opportunities to preserve and to bless them and their enemies. So when he opens his servant's eyes, verse 15 through 17, they come and they surround the place where Elisha is, and Elisha has no fear. I just want you to think for a second. Did Elisha know that these chariots of fire and horsemen, do you think he knew that they were surrounding him by faith or by sight? Like, do you think that Elisha could actually see all of this? And so he's like, oh, help him to see too. Like, help him see, you know, what I'm seeing. I mean, look at this. I mean, we're surrounded. Or do you think that Elisha, because of his understanding of God's word, because of what he had seen with Elijah when he ascended, do you think that there's a possibility that by faith, he understood that God faithfully protects his servants? That God is focused and faithful on working to preserve the remnants of his purpose within his nation. And therefore, by natural implication, God is zealously surrounding Elisha to protect him for his purpose, right? Uh, Mike on Wednesday gave an invitation about Jesus asleep on the boat uh, when the disciples were um, afraid they were going to die. Did Jesus know by faith that everything was okay or did he have some um, epiphany that separated him from them? And I think Jesus, he knew that they were going to make it to the other side and he knew that God was faithful. And I think 1 John 4.18, you don't need to turn there. Just the reference is perfect love casts out fear. Not that we perfectly love God, but that God perfectly loves us. And because God's love is perfect and because God is faithful in that perfect love, it gives us assurance in trials to know that we can rely in an anchored way on God's faithful protection as we are striving to serve him. And think about Jesus when he was arrested, right? Jesus, when he was arrested, is that they outsmarted Jesus in finding him? You know, Jesus had eluded the grasp of the Pharisees over and over and over again. Or is it that Jesus wanted to be found so that that could turn into an opportunity for God's grace to abound in the circumstances that he was actually leading, even though it may have looked like uh, he was being taken captive against his will. Um, you remember in Matthew 26:57, Jesus said to Peter, after Peter cut off the slave of the high priest's ear, do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, right? Again, did Jesus actually see those angels with his eyes? Or was it that by faith he simply understood that him being God's son, that he had by faith an understanding of God's zeal and protection for Christ in that way, right? So Jesus, in the same sense, was trying to open Peter's eyes. Um, so we'll keep going in the story here, 18 through 23, and finish it out. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elijah, or Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought him to Samaria. When they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of the Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. So just quick note, um, verse 19 can kind of be confusing, like what is Elisha saying there? 
I think the idea is ultimately the only reason they were seeking Elisha is out of frustration for not getting to go against the king of Israel. Um, so I think the idea is like, I'm going to take you to the man ultimately that you've been seeking, right? Um, so they're struck with blindness and they end up getting taken to the midst of, uh, of Samaria. And I think this is just a very interesting parallel to the way that Jesus was taken and arrested and how Jesus, in a sense, when he went to the cross, the idea is opening our eyes as enemies of God to see that as we pursue God, that justice is that we need to understand that God has the right to strike us, but has reserved that right out of kindness. Um, And I think the horror that the Arameans feel when they would have opened their eyes and seen that they could have been struck down immediately in Samaria helplessly is the same horror we should feel at the hearing of the gospel to know that we have been seeking Christ as his enemies, that we have cast him down, that we have taken advantage of his weakness, and that God had the capability to strike us but has reserved it again on the basis of his kindness. Um, And you see the effect that this kindness has on the Arameans in verse 23, that these marauding bands no longer came into the midst of Israel. And this is, I think, as unusual as like that stick being thrown in the water. Nothing, Nothing like this really had ever been done before, and nothing like this would ever be done again. It is just a very strange, almost like a, a window into what Israel could have been, you know, and, and the kinds of things that God was ultimately trying so desperately to do to help Israel to be the people that they could be. That it was, it was within Israel's grasp to be God's people. That they were not so far gone that they could not be lawfully the people that they were always supposed to be. I think one of the points of this is, again, just like the iron head floating in the water. You could think, you know, Israel, by this point, so much time has passed. The, king, the kings have been so wicked. They're so used to their idolatry. They just, it's impossible. You know, there, there's just no way a people like this could be reformed. And I think this proves, no, if they would just listen to this one prophet, everything could change forever. And I think the idea is God even right here was giving Israel an opportunity to start over. Same with the Arameans. Let's just, let's start from scratch. And brethren, that's the gospel. When we're confronted with the gospel, when we realize that God by his loving kindness has restrained his right to punish his enemies, when we see that God is surrounding us on all sides and preserving us, it helps us to understand that God is trying to give us this opportunity to become the people that he's calling us to be. And that he'll lead us there if we just listen to the one man, just the one, who will lead us and teach us and help us to be the people he's called us to be, right? Um, There's so much more to say about this, but just one, one more thing and we'll get into other applications. The Arameans didn't change. Israel didn't really change. But at the end of verse 23, there were some people who did change. The marauding bands would have been like independent people raiding, not, not like Aram, not the Arameans' formal army. So this would have just been individuals who maybe experienced this or heard about this, and they just, the violence stopped. 
And that's, I think, again, like the cross. It's not that everybody who witnessed Jesus' death converted. There were probably a lot of people who saw Jesus died who never changed. It's not that everybody who hears the gospel changes. But it is that there are those who vindicate God's wisdom because God ultimately is seeking to redeem individuals at any cost and with any possible effort to do it, right? So God, I think, is vindicated through the statement at the made of statement made at the end of verse 23. Um, so let's get into some uh, applications. Really, it's going to be one application. So I'm really just going to be circling around one application in this lesson and trying to look at that application from different different angles. And the application is hospitality. Romans chapter 12 instructs us to be given to hospitality, verse 13. And the idea is it's something you're actually pursuing. And so I think this account helps us to see hospitality in a very drawing and convicting way. First thing is that hospitality can be applied in various ways. So see on the outline, the first thing under that is, was Jesus hospitable? And the reason I ask that question is, Jesus didn't have a home. Like Jesus couldn't invite people into his home. And I think oftentimes I've struggled with thinking, okay, if I don't have my own home, can I be hospitable? And I think we've got to understand that hospitality goes way beyond inviting people into my house. And that's obviously a good application. But think, how is Jesus hospitable? Because I think Jesus actually gives us the greatest example of hospitality in the Bible. Luke chapter 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. Um, He's not going to come back. There's going to be no more wandering around Judea for Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It's his last journey to Jerusalem. The weight of the world is like literally crashing on his shoulders. You imagine the pressure, the grief, the the struggle of just focusing on anything because of just the exhaustion of just knowing emotionally what's going to happen. And yet he passes through Jericho and there's this man, Zacchaeus, who would have been easy to overlook because he wasn't in the crowd. He was a small man. He was a tax collector. He was a sinner. And yet Jesus on his way to Jerusalem with the world crashing on his shoulders makes time in the midst of all of those things to stop and give attention to Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, I need to stay at your house today. And he stops everything to stay with one guy. And I think when you think about the prophets, um, Elisha was just willing to go with them. You know, like he wasn't going into their homes. He just, they asked him to go with them, so he went, right? And I think it's important the prophets they asked. Um, I think when we're thinking about hospitality and, and various applications, if you feel like it's too difficult to bring someone into your home, and I'm not even condemning that thought, um, I think there's other applications you can be pursuing. So like Sunday, like, I mean, we're, we're here, most of us. Something that you could do is you could just invite somebody out to lunch with you and be like insistent about it, right? The prophets were pretty insistent here. You know, Elisha doesn't seem like his first thought was, yeah, I'll go with you. It's like, no, you, Elisha, you're coming with us, right? Um, So I think we just need to be zealous to bring people into our lives and just be among one another. Uh, And there's, again, there's more about hospitality than just bringing someone into my home. It could just be insisting that someone come with me somewhere where I was already going. Um, So I think there can also be the struggle of time. But I mean, we're all going to eat lunch this afternoon, right? So again, the prophets were already going where they were going. 
So it's like, well, Elisha, just come with us. I mean, we're already going there, so just be there with us, right? So places we might already be going, we can easily bring someone in, especially if they're already right there, right? Um, Other thing about this is God urges and protects the hospitality of his servants. Uh, I don't know about you, but hospitality to me can be very scary. Um, It can be messy, probably one of the messiest things that God commands. Um, And I don't just mean physically messy, I mean the struggle of connecting with people, the struggle of saying things that could be hurtful and not meaning to, the struggle of like, what do we even have in common? You know, like, what are we going to talk about? Is it just going to be a big quiet time where we're awkwardly trying to make some connection and can't find it, you know? Um, We have to think that the Arameans and the Israelites have anything in common. I mean, this was God's people, despite their sinning nature in the account. These were not righteous God's people. These were awful God's people. The Arameans and the Israelites had nothing in common. Like they were so different from each other and yet God's desire was still to bring them together. They made the feast and they they did it. Luke 10, 1 through 9. Again, you don't need to turn there. It's more just referencing it. But Jesus sends out 70 disciples and he actually sends them out in a deliberately vulnerable condition. And so God urges hospitality. He commands it. But we have to understand God protects hospitality. Um, And I think that helps calm and soothe my fears. So Jesus sent the disciples out very vulnerable. But just like Elisha, they would need to have the conviction of faith that as they were doing what their master had instructed, that God would protect them along the way, right? So just like Elisha was protected, how inconsistent would it be then that in the new covenant, when we're adopted children of God, to think that, well, God is protecting Elisha, but... uh, I don't know if he's going to protect me, you know? So I think that's important, especially when we understand hospitality is not optional, right? So God is not saying like, you know, some of you practice hospitality. No, each of us are commanded to be hospitable. We've got to understand hospitality is a command from our king and he gives that command for a reason. We must obey. We have to. We've got to figure out how to obey God in this matter. And Going back to point one underneath that, the latter part, one of the important things that I think God is seeking, just like the stick in the water, as weird as an example as that is, when God's people are together with the purpose of obeying his will, because Elisha and the prophets, I don't know how much they had in common personality-wise, but they were just, they were prophets, right? So they bonded on that identity. But God wants things to be brought into view. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, he told his disciples, when you go in someone's house, you say with your mouth verbally, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The idea is through this common, useless vessel that has no power of itself, this person in your house, something through them is being brought into view to be taken and it's through the hospitality of the disciples initiating this that these things would happen. So finally, hospitality subdues anger and changes hearts. Um, I think men, we can all relate. So guys, like, probably, if you were honest, would all say, like, yeah, I struggle with anger, right? Um, and we have to understand, I think, that hospitality is vital to overcoming anger and bitterness. And I think how that point is made here is the Arameans. The king of Israel is thinking, should I kill them? And Elijah says, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not what's happening here. These are people you could attack, but we're going to show them grace and kindness. 
Um, the idea is hospitality gives us opportunities for self-sacrifice, self-denial, for the purpose of being merciful and gracious according to God's will and example, right? Hospitality creates opportunities for self-denial, for self-sacrifice, for mercy and graciousness by God's example. And so those people who would benefit the most from hospitality are people who we would often most overlook or neglect because of fear of what it may require to get to know them. Um, and it's easiest to be, I think, socially hospitable. So there's people where, like, the connection's easy. Like, we, maybe we're common age. Maybe we have common jobs. Maybe we like the same movies and music. And there's just all sorts of things that we have in common. And you end up only bonding over those things. And I'll tell you, the closest friends I've ever had have been brethren where I literally had nothing in common with them at all in the world. And Devin, I'm going to use you as an example without your approval. But Devin has said himself that if we were not brethren, we would never be friends. And he's probably right. And I've had a lot of friends like that. And I'll tell you, Devin may be the closest friend that I have ever had, right? And when Devin and I are together, we, we learn to like enjoy each other's company. But how we get so close is our bond is not based in we like the same television shows, we like the same music, we like the same movies. None of those things. We bond because we're both trying to serve the Lord and we're enduring oppression in the process, right? So hospitality is most valuable when you're showing it to those that you're most prone to overlook or not connect with for any reason otherwise, right? Um, Last thing, new Christians especially need to be shown hospitality, especially by those who are mature. And Carl, Stephen, Paul Johnson, Malvin, you know, John Doyle, you know, these are brethren who have the need to be shown hospitality, whatever way you can show it. And, and I'm taking a risk by saying that openly, right? But I, I trust this group and the way we're growing. But we have to understand that's one of the reasons why God commands hospitality, because there are opportunities that are open when we're with each other in that way that otherwise are never going to be there. The stick was never going to be thrown in the water if Elisha wasn't there. The Arameans were never going to be shown this kindness. Elisha wasn't there. And remember, it was Elisha who initiated this because he knew God's character. So that's, that's where we'll stop. The conclusion is John 9. The Pharisees who were with Jesus when a man was blind who was healed, they said, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. The idea is we need to be like the Arameans. We've got to accept that we know nothing, we see nothing, we just have to let the master lead us and he will lead us to streams of living water if we'll just surrender ourselves to his will. He'll lead us to joy and peace everlasting. The, the peace and the joy of this moment, what a shame that that's all that it was. Our joy can be everlasting. Let's let the master lead us. If there's anything that needs to be made known, make it known when we stand and sing an invitation song.